Well, it's really a joy and a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you again today. We're only a few weeks away from Easter, and so I didn't want to dive straight back into the book of Revelation, although that book seems to be more relevant right now than it ever was before. Uh, We've also got a bit of an interrupted time over the next couple of weeks. We had our prayer week last week. We've got a guest preacher next week, and then Easter shortly after that. So I thought today I'd preach on a different passage and then pick up on Revelation again, either in those two weeks before Easter or after or both. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, this is a kind of a warm-up sermon after being away for so long. I need to remember how to do it. I want to preach on a topic that I was really challenged on while I was on leave. I was reading a section of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And as I read, I did what every preacher is tempted to do, but really shouldn't do. I prayed, oh Lord, please give me a Bible passage to go along with this excellent sermon illustration. But I think that as, as you'll see as we go through, what, what Lewis says in that section of mere Christianity is really an exposition of Luke chapter 14. And if you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to that chapter. Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. And then also keep a finger in Luke chapter 9, because we'll be looking at that later in the sermon too. So Luke 14 from verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't you first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. Recently, I came across some comments that had been filled in on cards at a nature reserve in America. It was put into the comments box in this nature reserve, and they were comments and suggestions that were made about the facilities and the hiking trails. And let me read some of them to you. Trails need to be wider so people can walk holding hands. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spiderwebs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. Please pave the trails so they can be plowed of snow during the winter. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way I can get reimbursed? 
Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. (laughs) Clearly, these dear folk didn't understand exactly what is involved in hiking. But sometimes, something similar happens when it comes to following Jesus. It's possible to attempt to follow Jesus without understanding exactly what is involved. And that is what was happening in this incident that Luke records for us. Luke tells us that large crowds were following Jesus. The word disciple really means one who follows. And so the people here in Luke chapter 14 were all would-be disciples. They were doing what Jesus calls disciples to do. They are with him, learning to be like him. And we read here that there were lots of them. Luke tells us that it was large crowds who were following Jesus. But I think that as in all crowds, different individuals were there for different reasons. Some in that crowd were looking for a meal. In Luke chapter 9, we read about how Jesus fed 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. And some people in this crowd were possibly hoping that Jesus would do the same again. There may even have been some in that crowd who had purposely left their lunches at home. Others in the crowd were looking for a miracle. Luke records many miracles that Jesus performed, about 14 up to this point in his gospel. In fact, in the chapter just before this, chapter 13, we read how Jesus healed a lady who'd been crippled for 18 years. And so some people followed Jesus to see what he would do next. They were looking for the spectacular and the unusual, looking for a miracle. There were some in that crowd who were looking for a Messiah, uh, not the Messiah of the Old Testament or even of the New Testament, but their concept of the Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would be a conquering hero who would would boot the Roman occupying forces out of Israel and set up his own kingdom. That Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and many of the people must have thought that this was going to be it. This would be the final showdown with Rome. Well, Jesus was headed for Jerusalem, but he wasn't going there to be crowned, but rather to be crucified. And he would radically change people's idea of what the Messiah would look like. And then finally, I do believe that there were some in that crowd who followed Jesus because he was truly their master and their Lord. They would have followed him in feast or famine. They didn't want something from him. They just wanted him. I think the scene must have been fairly impressive. Uh, Jesus must have been out the front because Luke tells us that when he addresses the crowd, he turns around. And as I've said, Luke speaks about large crowds who are following Jesus. So Jesus's ministry really seems to have taken off. As human beings, we are easily impressed by numbers. How many people were at the service? How many young people were at the youth meeting? How many people were at the prayer meeting? And if the answer is a big number, then we believe that the meeting was a success. And so by our standards, this large crowd of people demonstrated that Jesus' ministry was a success. But Jesus didn't see it that way. 
Jesus knew all about the different motives in that crowd. And so he stops in his tracks and he turns around and he deliberately preaches a sermon to thin out the ranks a bit. Jesus is no insurance salesman or cell phone contract salesperson who hides the fine print. He is open and honest about exactly what is involved in being his disciple, in following him. I think it's very important to see that what Jesus lays out for us here in Luke chapter 14 is not for some special category of Christian. Many people read passages like this and say, well, I only signed up to be a Christian. I didn't sign up to be a disciple. The word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament to describe someone who follows Jesus. Do you know how many times the word Christian is used? Just three times. <laughs> and it's only used to distinguish the disciples of Jesus from the Jewish people. Discipleship is for all believers. It's not for some special category of Christians. As Dallas Willard puts it in one of his books, the disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian, especially padded, textured, streamlined, and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. No, to be an authentic Christian means to be a disciple. Again, someone who follows Jesus, being with him, learning to be like him. And in this passage, Jesus tells the crowd and us that, that if they, if we are going to follow him, if we are going to be his disciples, then there need to be three things that characterize our lives. Things that Jesus says without which we cannot be his disciples. That phrase, cannot be my disciple, is repeated three times in these verses. The first mark of a genuine disciple, a Christ follower, is that he or she sees their relationship with Jesus as more important than any other relationship. Have a look at verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, they cannot be my disciple. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Is Jesus really telling us to hate people? No. Jesus told us to love our enemies. So I can't believe that he would want us to hate our families. No, the expression here really means to love less. Jesus is saying that our love for him, our devotion to him, needs to be so strong that by comparison, our love for our families needs to look like hate. Now, if you think about it, these early disciples had demonstrated that exact thing. Think about how Zebedee must have felt as his sons James and John left him in the boat with all of their fishing equipment and went off to follow Jesus. Those 12 disciples had left their families to be with him. And sometimes Jesus' command to us may need to be literal as well. I think of some of the young people who've left home to serve Jesus on mission fields overseas They've had to love Jesus more than mom and dad. Easy to do when mom and dad are Christians and understand what you're doing. 
Not so easy when they don't know Jesus and think that you're wasting your time. So some of us are called to leave our families, but all of us are called to make our relationship with Jesus our number one priority, which is extremely difficult. When I think about how much time and effort I need to spend to maintain my relationship with Michelle or my relationship with my children, I wonder how much time and effort I need to spend in my relationship with Jesus. You know, some of us have jobs where we uh, pass our spouse like ships in the night. We have to work jolly hard to, to work on that relationship. We've got to carve out time to be with one another. We have to spend money on one another. And Jesus says that our efforts in our relationship with him should take even a greater amount of thought and effort, which is difficult, except for the fact that he is always with us. I have several hours of the day when I'm not with Michelle, but God is always with me. And it's easier then, I think, to maintain that relationship with him when I try to be conscious of his presence with me every moment of every day. The second mark of a true disciple is that their relationship with Jesus is more important than their possessions. If the first mark of a genuine disciple is that their relationship with Jesus is more important than anyone, then the second mark is that their relationship with Jesus is more important than anything. Verse 33. In the same way, any of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Again, that was something that the twelve had done. James and John and Peter and Andrew had left their boats and their fishing nets and their lucrative fishing business to follow Jesus. Matthew had left his extremely lucrative business as a tax collector, just left his booth in the Jerusalem Inland Revenue Service office. At one point, Simon Peter, being the self-effacing man he was, says to Jesus, we've given up everything that we have to follow you. And he was right. They really had done Now, once again, some believers are called to literally give up everything for Jesus. There are those who are called to leave their houses and cars and join a foreign missionary society. But for all of us, it will mean recognizing that all that we have in this life has been given to us on trust. And it means being prepared for the owner of those goods to take them back at any time. We lay everything on an open hand before God, recognizing that all we have comes from him and can be requested by him at any time. Jesus knows that one of our greatest problems is that our hearts are idle factories. And it is so easy for us to place a variety of different things in a place that belongs to God alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who lived in Nazi Germany and who openly opposed Adolf Hitler, which led to his execution in a concentration camp in 1945. One thinks this morning of the plight of Russian pastors who face lengthy jail sentences if they speak out against the war with Ukraine. But Bonhoeffer once wrote this, God and the world... God and its goods are incompatible. 
Because the world and its goods make a bid for our hearts. Our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord. Our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord. So a genuine disciple, a Christ follower, is someone who loves Jesus more than anyone. Their relationship with Jesus is more important than any other relationship. A genuine Christ follower is someone who loves Jesus more than anything. Their relationship with Jesus is more important than their possessions. And thirdly, a true disciple is someone who loves Jesus more than their very self. In verse 27, Jesus says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I think that Jesus clarified this statement a little earlier on in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 9. It's actually a very similar scene. Again, there are these crowds following Jesus, and Jesus turns and says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Taking up our cross involves denying ourselves, dying to ourselves. And here is where C.S. Lewis fits in. This little concept of the self is a very important one. Let me paraphrase the first bit. Uh, You can read it for yourself in Mere Christianity. But, But Lewis says that before we become Christians, we take as our starting point our ordinary selves with all of its various desires and interests. And then we admit that something else or someone else has a claim on the self which interferes with our own desires. Some of the things that we wanted to do turn out to be bad, and so we will have to give them up. Other things that we didn't really want to do turn out to be good, and so we will have to do those. But all the time, he says, we are hoping that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we're like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that there'll be enough left over for him to live on. Because we're still taking our natural selves as the starting point. And then he says this. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, my own will shall become yours. The hard thing, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. 
But it's far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time serve Christ. We're all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Jesus warned us you couldn't do. As he says, a thistle can't produce figs. If I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I can't produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be ploughed up and re-sown. I wonder what those in the crowd who were following Jesus for a meal or for a miracle or for a Messiah felt like at this point. They clearly wanted Jesus' help in some area of their lives. They had needs that they wanted him to meet. They had a specific agenda. But now they suddenly discover that while indeed Jesus wants to meet those needs, he also wants to meet needs that they hadn't necessarily acknowledged or known about. While they may have an agenda, they discover that he too has an agenda. Let me read some of Lewis again. He says, when I was a child, I often had toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for the night and let me get some sleep. But I didn't go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I didn't go was this. I didn't doubt she'd give me the aspirin, but I knew she'd also do something else. I knew she'd take me to the dentist the next morning. In fact, I couldn't get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I didn't really want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I couldn't get it without my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which hadn't begun to ache. They wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of one particular sin which they are ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, he will cure it all right, but he won't stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever suffering it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, as he said, he was well pleased with me. And so Jesus says that if we want to follow him, 
we have to give up what we call ourselves. As one writer puts it, we sign our names at the bottom of a blank piece of paper and say to God, you fill in the rest. Well, how does that work practically for us today? Well, there's a little word in the words that we've looked at in Luke's chapter 9, which is so important. Luke, verse, Luke 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's that little word daily that is so important. Lewis writes this. The real problem of the Christian life comes where people don't usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning is just shoving them all back, just listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. We can only do it for a few moments at first, but from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system, because now we are letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain, which soaks right through. Not just at the beginning of the day, but as we've said, all through the day too. Surely that's what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he said, pray continually. Be aware of God continually. Try to invite Jesus into every moment as much as possible. In fact, I remember hearing of a man, I think it may have been Dallas Willard, who said that he aimed for several months of his life to try and bring Jesus into every single moment. And he said that that was the most hardest thing possible. But he discovered that everything else became easier. Now, perhaps all of this sounds terribly hard and terribly unpleasant. But if we think that way, have a look again at what Jesus says in verses 24 and 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? These verses speak about gaining and losing. And I think there are two things here. Firstly, we were made by God and we were made for God. Taking what I call my life and using it however I want won't result in the fullness of life that God intended for me because he's the only one who knows what I was created for. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Of course, we never wanted and never asked to be made into the perfect people he's going to make us into. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. He is the inventor. We are only the machine. He is the painter. We are only the picture. 
How should we know what he means us to be like? You see, he's already made us something very different from what we once were. Long ago, before we were born, when we were inside our mother's bodies, we passed through various stages. We were once rather like vegetables and once rather like fish. Only at a later stage did we become like human babies. And if we'd been conscious of those earlier stages, I dare say we should have been quite contented to stay as vegetables or fish, shouldn't have wanted to be made into babies. But all the time he knew his plan for us and was determined to carry it out. Something the same is now happening at a higher level. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but he is determined to carry out a quite different plan. So if I was made by God and for God, then I can only ever find my true life in him. If I try to find my life myself, I'll end up losing it. But if I lose my life in him and for him, I'll truly find it. One last C.S. Lewis quote. (laughs) Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life, and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. And then just one final note of encouragement. If we think that all of this is just too hard, we have in these verses the example of our Lord Jesus himself. The context for Jesus' words in Luke chapter 9 is found in verse 22. Before Jesus speaks these words, he says to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. As always, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he has not already done for us. He gave up his self, his will, his life, his desires for us in order to bring us to God. Adrian Plass is a Christian writer and speaker. And he writes a poem that captures something of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And I'll read this as we close. It's called, When I Became a Christian. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think amen. Amen, I think. I think I say amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. 
I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit. A bit, I say, amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made up my mind, and I say amen a bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while, then tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said, amen, tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, Amen, I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, I said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think that religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those whom no one wants to know? Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear, to battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen, amen. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. I'd grant that we might also say, 